Well, I'm Pastor George, and this is another episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. I have a return guest, Ruling Elder Brad Isbell of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And Brad is a machinophile. Is that a word, machinophile? Um, uh, it is now. It is now. <laughs> uh, we're talking about Christianity and liberalism. It's the 100th anniversary of J. Gresham Machen's uh, very famous work, Christianity and Liberalism. On the last episode, I read uh, Fosdick's sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And really kind of just highlighted what I thought was applicable to today. And and as we get into this uh, discussion, that's what we want to talk about. We want to see where are the similarities between uh, the fundamentalist modernist controversy of 100 years ago and the I don't know for fundamentalists, Brad, but the the postmodernist controversy of today. Are, well, do you take well, umbrage at the word fundamentalist describing you, Brad? Um, well, if you mean in the sense of a of a Baptist with an ill fitting suit and uh, you know some uh, slobber coming out of his mouth and foam, uh, yes. But uh, if it if it if it just means conservative uh, Bible believing Christian, I think I'm okay with it. Machen would have said the same, although he he didn't. He didn't really consider himself a fundamentalist, but he certainly um, felt an affinity with them. Uh, but he was sort of, I think somebody, maybe Daryl Daryl Hart once called him a highbrow fundamentalist. You know, the, okay. the, the the most sophisticated, the most learned, the 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 most urbane of all the fundamentalists. Okay. Okay. Now, what about what about John Frame's characterization of of uh, of us as Machen's warrior children? Well, I think that was a very uh, unfortunate but uh, telling uh, essay that he wrote a good long time ago, probably twenty years or more. Um, yeah, we've uh, we uh, we've we've talked about that on the Presby cast before. But yeah, that's uh, it's instructive. Everyone should read that. Look that up. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Machen's Warrior Children, and uh, he says that. Uh, you know, we were with, uh, I think he's talking more about the OPC people, but of course a lot of PCA people have picked up the uh, the uh, ethos that we were sort of born fighting and we're still fighting and we only know how to fight. And I don't, right, we're just I don't think that's true. Fight. But no, I, I don't. I'll, I'll say this, what attracted me to Machen when I was new to, new to Presbyterianism, new to the PCA, um, was that he did provide a model or a reminder that, that there are things worth fighting for. You know, that's right there at the beginning of the book we're going to talk about tonight, that the the, the things that are unimportant, people often agree on. The, the things that are really important, uh, to quote Machen, are the things about which men will fight. And um, um, it's worth fighting for. You know, they're, they're, you know I, I can imagine being in some churches and I'm thinking, well, I don't know if this is worth... Uh, uh, fighting for, but what we have is because it's biblical and uh, reformed uh, confessional doctrine, uh, the, the 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 wonderful ecclesiology, the history that we have, all those things are worth fighting for. Although we don't want to fight just because, you know, we we like to fight, and I, I yeah, don't like no, to fight. I, I don't I don't like to fight. No, no, yeah, no doubt. And so this is the 50th anniversary of the PCA we'll be celebrating, and it's the 100th anniversary of this book we're talking about. And I do think the PCA is worth fighting for. Um, it's one of the reasons I started this podcast uh, for, for ruling elders, because 
And again, really, I, I've had you on this show before. I kind of uh, introduced guests to you, but I don't, I don't really think so. I think anybody listening to this already listens to PresbyCast, but you're the host of PresbyCast and really just have encouraged me over the years to, to uh, have my ruling elders involved. And uh, I, I provide this platform. So as we have this discussion, I kind of want to assume that maybe people have heard of Machen, but they're not really familiar with maybe the debates that were going on 100 years ago. And maybe they're not even familiar with this book, Christianity and Liberalism, although it's been promoted pretty heavily by the GRN, of which uh, of which I'm a part and, and, and uh, you're a supporter. And so let's just dig right into this. What what was going on when Machen wrote this in 1923 and had been going on for a few decades at that point, really? Well, let me give you a little bio back up on uh, on Machen. I think yeah. he was born in 1886 or seven, and he uh, his mother was uh, Southern Presbyterian from uh, Macon, Georgia. Uh, she'd actually, you know, witnessed some of the parts of the Civil War as the as uh, the Union Army came through Macon. You can still go and stay in the family home. I think it's called the it's called the eighteen something inn in Macon, Georgia. Harry Reader stayed down there. Daryl Hart's been there. I visited it after the twenty what was that, eighteen General Assembly in Atlanta. Oh, driving on the way home I, I just, you know, stopped by and took some pictures, made some video. I've never stayed there. Uh, but his heritage was Southern Presbyterian. Uh, he was. Uh, he grew up in Baltimore, and uh, his family and I can't remember the name of the church, but they were a member of a of a Southern church. There were Southern and Northern churches uh, in uh, in in Baltimore. So his heritage is Southern Presbyterian, um, but he ended up uh, at uh, Princeton, Princeton Theological Seminary, after having gone to John Johns Hopkins in languages and being a student. Then at uh, at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, which was the you know it was the flagship seminary of the PCUSA, uh, but it was also the um, the most conservative and confessional of all the seminaries. So that put them in an interesting uh, position in the early 20th century. Now, about the time Machen was born in the 1880s, um, you could see clear signs of liberal liberalization. And uh, openness to some of the higher critical thinking. Um, there was a famous heresy trial for, uh, I think it was Augustus Briggs. You can look up the Briggs trial in the 1880s. And I don't, I don't even remember exactly how that turned out. But that's just to say that um, nothing comes out of nowhere. Uh, this has been developing in the Northern Church for a while, uh, since the late uh, 19th century. And... Um, you know, I've done some research. I'm, I'm interested in, you know, elders and deacons and officers and things like that. And um, the, the evangelical impulse uh, of the Northern Church led them to receive in 1905-1906 uh, most of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Now, we, we're in an interesting time. We've got the alleged revival up in Kentucky at Asbury College and at several colleges across the country. Well, not too far from that, on the other side of Lexington, is really where the uh, the Second Great Awakening sort of kicked off in the South, uh, Cane Ridge, the Cane Ridge Revival. Out of Cane Ridge came the Church of Christ, the Campbellites, uh, and all the branches that came off of that, but also the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, 
which uh, you know they 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 chafed at uh, the requirements for an ordained ministry. Uh, I'm sorry, an educated ministry seminary training because that was a hindrance to them on the frontier. They couldn't grow as quickly. They couldn't uh, they couldn't uh, you know commission ministers and get them on the field. So they were sort of a four point. Calvinistic, uh, of course they you know they didn't like uh, definite atonement very well. Uh, they had uh, female officers very quickly, and this was like in 1805, so it was in the first two decades of the of the 19th century when the Cumberlands started. Uh, but they pretty quickly had female uh, officers, probably even female exhorters. There were a lot of female preach- preachers. Uh, back in uh, those, in, even in the early 1800s, in that revival movement, so the Cumberland Presbyterian Church was received. Most of it, most of it, was received back into the Northern Church in 1905-1906. So the the Northern Church had this desire to grow, to reabsorb these uh, barely Calvinistic Presbyterians. They actually changed the confession for them. They softened the confession. They put a they put a chapter in on the love of God, and they kind of put some qualifiers on, you know, elect infants and uh, maybe the importance of, you know, yeah, just very evangelical changes to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean, they what added a couple the, of chapters even, uh, and that was all done with in the, the service. Um, I think maybe that was, I was looking at that today. I think maybe they softened definite atonement even a little I bit. Think, yeah, I think I think limited atonement was an issue for them too. Yeah, and uh, they weren't completely against it, but uh, I think there was some modification there. Two or three chapters added, a couple of things modified. So I say that to say that, and I'm not a church historian, but my opinion is that it's best to view uh, even the liberalizing Northern Church as an evangelical church. Uh, they wanted to grow. Uh, they they weren't they weren't what we would think of as classic revivalist, but they they were surely interested in uh, growing, uh, and in the the in the city, in contextualization, in appealing to the culture, all those things, and that's evidenced in receiving the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in 1904-1905. So. Machen's in you know college then he wasn't really um, plugged into these changes, but all this stuff had already you know you know the wheels towards liberalization were already turning, um, and that was way back 1905 and six, and as um as someone concerned with the deacon deaconess issue female officers in the PCA, I started thinking well what you know what was Machen dealing with what was going on in the Northern Church. Well, the Cumberland Church already had female elders and deacons, uh, at least deacons, uh, I think elders too. And uh, so really, the PCUSA, um, they bought female deacons when they, when they bought the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And that happened in, the, in you know, around 1910 or so. Um, sometime before 1922, they had those. So Machen was a member of a church with female officers. And you just don't see him writing about that or talking about it. It was already a done deal before he became active around 1920 uh, in the Northern Church. And uh, given the scale of the other problems they have, he just wasn't all that worried about it, I think. Um, it, um, but the best evidence of, of how he actually felt about it was that the, the OPC, 
formed in 36, you know, with him at the head, at the head didn't have female officers of any kind. Um, right, that's I mean that that's a great point for just people listening cuz we fight battles on various fronts and we have to pick our battles, you know, and it'd be easy to walk in a church and 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 think a church is you know, is supportive or the, or the leadership of a church is supportive of things you may be witnessing in the church, but they may be fighting battles in, 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 in all different levels. And so that's very interesting about Machen. I didn't know that. Yeah, the point is not to let it get there. Uh, you don't want the doctrinal situation of your church to be so bad that ecclesiology is suddenly not very important. You know, that that so some people yeah, say... Great point. That we in the PCA, oh, you're too worried about these things. Well, no, we're worried about those things because we're worried about what comes after them and what they portend and what that, you know, what, the, the view of Scripture that will allow things like that will eventually allow other problems. And I don't want to fight the same battles that Machen fought. Um, no, and if, if, we don't, if we don't take care of the little stuff, that's a sure sign that we're not going to deal with the big stuff. Yeah, so Machen, he was, uh, you know, he was sort of a spoiled rich kid in a way. Uh, his family had money. His dad was a lawyer. And uh, there was some family money. And uh, there had been a lot of legal heritage in his family. I think one of his great-grandfathers was like a clerk to the U.S. Senate. I think they had somebody that worked at the Library of Congress. I mean, they were, they were establishment um, uh, moneyed people. So he had the option of... You know, taking about 10 years to figure out what he was going to do. Uh, he would take language classes, and he thought he was going to teach Greek. And uh, he was a, a high-level Greek scholar, even in the, the secular sense. Uh, and, but eventually, uh, he didn't know if he ever wanted to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church. I think he didn't. I think he wasn't sure of his profession. And I think there were some things, you know, he was a high-level intellect, he had some of the intellectual struggles that intellectuals have with Christianity today. So around, oh, 1910, I think, 12, maybe a year or two off, he went to Germany to study, as many um, religious Protestant uh, uh, religious scholars did. He went to uh, Tübingen and Göttingen. Uh, those were that's those were the really the seedbed of that's where they invented. Protestant liberalism, and that's where, you know, and he was there off and on for a couple of years, and he had a crisis of faith. He uh, struggled with uh, the claims of, uh, of liberalism. He was shocked when he got there that these, these professors were, they seemed to be Christian because they had, a, they were very pious, and they had all these experiences, uh, and he was tempted. Uh, there are letters with his mother back and forth that, that kind of go through this. We learn that his mother was praying for him all the time. She was very uh, doctrinally sophisticated. She knew what was going on. And uh, But it, it's, it's a puzzling thing that even conservative Protestants kept sending their best and brightest to Germany in the, the late 1800s and all through the 20th century and, uh, and lost them to liberalism. And uh, you know the critical, critical, uh, um, uh, what, they, what do they call it? The higher criticism of Scripture, uh, which meant that they only believed a small part of it, and uh, it, it really. 
became, for those liberals in Germany, all about experience. It was about all they had left. Some of them had a, a, heritage, a heritage of Lutheran pietism, which arguably is kind of like the revivalism of Europe, you know, northern Europe. Um, but, you know, Machen was, he was nearly swayed, uh, but he, he got through that. He came back home, uh, and after a year or two of teaching at Princeton, he finally decided that he would seek ordination um, in the, the Northern Presbyterian Church. Though he was a Southern Presbyterian, uh, Princeton was the seminary of the Northern Presbyterian Church. And then World War I happened. Um, he, um, I think he was a little too old to serve. He also didn't think a minister should carry a gun. Uh, he considered the ambulance corps, uh, but he found out that they had to do a little shooting sometimes too. So he volunteered for the YMCA, which was not an exercise club back then. It was actually kind of a, uh, pardon the expression, a Christian nationalist um, civic organization. And uh, and the U.S. government, they were so ill prepared for World War One. You know, we had a tiny army when World War One started. Um, they basically couldn't handle a lot of the, the logistics and uh, commissary stuff and um, um, mailing of letters and all these sorts of things that a chaplain might do. Uh, so they let the YMCA take it over. So he volunteered as a, a YMCA, uh, I forget, um, not a chaplain, I forget the name that they assigned to uh, this sort of work that he did. Most of what he did was make hot chocolate and sell stamps to French soldiers. Uh, he had some language, uh, and he was very near the front, you know, got got nearly blown up a time or two. But he finally, at the end of the war, got to preach a little bit. And that was some of the first preaching he did, uh, was to soldiers of various kinds in uh, Paris and in the area after, world, after the hostilities had ended. But he didn't do any preaching or real chaplain work during the war. Uh, he just he served very humbly there, and he came back from uh, he got back in well, maybe sometime in 1919, and uh, and threw himself fully into the to the ministry of the Northern Church. He was never a pastor. Uh, he had some some interim pastorates at, at significant at the fairly significant church there in Princeton, but he was never a local church pastor. He was always a, kind of an itinerant preacher and writer and seminary professor and a later seminary founder and president. Um, but I don't know. When I use this word, it's going to sound like a different kind of fundamentalist. Uh, everybody has their radicalization moment. You know, for me, it was the 2010 General Assembly and the strategic plan. You can go look that up if you don't know about it. It pretty much told us everything that was going to happen in the PCA for the past 13 years, and um, and it involved, uh, you know, an early draft of that strategic plan. So eh, maybe we could leave NAPARC and partner with denominations. And you could tell they meant the EPC, uh, people that we have people that we have more in common with that we share missional priorities with. Well, as a fairly new Presbyterian, that sent me right through the roof. <laughs> I mean, I just I thought, okay, I didn't sign up to 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 become um, a squishy evangelical Presbyterian, you know, that's not not what we needed. Uh, I came from evangelicalism. I didn't I didn't want any more of that. 
Um, but Machen uh, was a delegate to the 20, uh, 1920 uh, General Assembly of the Northern Church. And the issue there, of course, he, you know, he's on the faculty of the seminary by this time at Princeton. You can imagine what the seminary lounge, you know, faculty lounge conversations were like. He's hanging out. He's working with Warfield and uh, the young, you know, the last Hodge and those guys. So, you know, they knew what was up. And um, I love uh, the picture well, of them, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. But they what was so up? bothered by having to take that picture. Yeah, he hated. Yes, he didn't like to have his picture made. Um, but what was up was the plan of organic union. There was a plan to make a Protestant super denomination. Again, we talk about Christian nationalism. Mainline Protestantism ran the country back then. You know, all of our politicians, most you know, our bankers, um, the, the tycoons—they were all Rockefeller. Okay, does that ring a bell? <laughs> he was a Protestant liberal, a mainline Protestant liberal, and uh, they ran the country. So this idea of uh, one super denomination of all, you know, the Episcopal Church, the American Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, uh, the uh, uh, Congregational Churches, all these things coming together for one super denomination. Well, it never happened, but it was being considered in 1920. And Machen, you know, thankfully and predictably was against that. He saw that that was going to dilute what little doctrine that they, you know, were holding on to. So that was his radicalization moment. So really, he hadn't had a lot of denominational involvement prior to 1920. So he went from, in you know, my perception, uh, he, he certainly didn't during the war, you know, 1918, 19, he wasn't thinking about these things. He comes back to the U.S. and immediately plunges in. So that's 1920. Uh, He's given the lectures that, that led to this book, Christianity and Liberalism, in 1921. Uh, he's writing the journal articles that became this book in 22, and in February 23, uh, you know, we're, we're in the month, exactly 100 years ago, this book came out. So I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever read anyone talk about, uh, who talked about how quickly he became just very active and very plugged in. And, uh, you know, radical after a fashion. Uh, when he jumped into the Presbyterian ministry, he jumped in with both feet. And, uh, what, what church and what state was he in at the time? Well, he wasn't at a church, so where, but, where's Princeton? Well, he he probably attended First Jersey? First Presbyterian of, of Princeton, New Jersey, yeah. Right. But okay. he would preach. He would go to New... If he wasn't preaching, he would often go to New York, New York City, and he would hear all kinds of preachers. I mean, he heard Fosdick many times before Fosdick ever preach that sermon, which you alluded to early, earlier, but he traveled a lot. And um, so he was a member of the Presbytery of New Brunswick, which is what, what the, you know, encompasses that area. Right. So uh, did he and Fosdick ever, that you know of, have interaction, debate, discussion, or was it all just, or, or do people just use these two works, even though Fosdick's was a sermon and, and Machen's became a book? They just yeah. use these works as the symbolic poles yeah, of the. Debate. It was all in. It was all in print. I mean, Machen was highly respected, but you know he didn't. He would go if you read his letters. He would quietly go and slip into a church in New York and just listen. Uh, Henry Sloan Coffin. He was a liberal uh, Presbyterian. He would hear him preach. 
uh, you know, and, and Machen would comment on these things and write letters to his family and talk about them. Um, but yeah, he, he traveled a lot. He was all over. Uh, he had some okay. sense of, of teaching Sunday school or being an interim pastor there. In, uh, but he quickly made enemies. Uh, there were some liberals at that church, powerful, uh, uh, powerful guys who kind of kind of did him in. A, famous, uh, a, a former pastor, uh, Henry, I think uh, Henry Van Dyke, uh, he kind of had it in for Machen at some point. Uh, and people would write letters to the editor. I mean, there were people who, you know, when, when some of these guys decided they didn't like Machen, they would basically hold a press conference, and the New, the New York Times would cover the goings-on at Princeton Seminary. Uh, it's not like today. I mean, the, they, it really was national news when the Presbyterian Church had a fight. Right, right. And so the fundamentalists become known as the fundamentalists because of the five fundamentals, which I explained uh, last Well, last And it was episode. a series of books. There were actually more than five. But yes, okay. yeah. But those five became the symbol of it, right? And the Presbyterian Church also had their own five points. They weren't the five points of Calvinism or the five fundamentals, but it was five essential doctrines. Uh, and that's another thing. It's a huge warning sign when a denomination says, "Well, we've got this confession that's important, but here's what we really believe. Here are the five things we can't do without." Or here are the five things you've got to swear allegiance to. You've already lost the battle at that point. You've lost the battle. Yeah. Yes. So that's, I, I, I so discussed he, that last time. Like, it, it, it sends the signal that other things are, are, are not as important or we can differ on these other things. It, uh, it always amazes me how we have this confession that is so clear on so many things, and then we want to re-clarify what's already clear. <laughs> Yeah. So, so the so this book. How did the, how did the book uh, Christianity and Liberalism? What was its genesis? So you gave us the background and and the setting. Well, here, here's my 1924 second edition. Oh, nice. Of the book. Uh, there are a lot. There are actually a lot of first editions floating around, um, and they're not you know they're not terribly expensive. Um, so you can you can find one on eBay or somewhere on one of those book sites if you want it. Uh, but this is a beautiful one. It's uh, it's well printed. It's a nice size. Um, good, you know. It's not a. It's not a. You see, it's a thin book, right? And, and the print's not that small, so uh, it's very very accessible. But it's also free online. You don't have to ever spend any money to read uh, Christianity and liberalism. Very easy to find. So the preface gives the genesis of the book. Uh, in November of twenty one. Um, uh, Machen delivered uh, some addresses, inst- uh, or an address, probably a long one, uh, to uh, the uh, Ruling Elder Association, which we don't really have those anymore. But when you think about how ubiquitous Presbyterians were in uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, that part of the world, um, the Presbytery up there, and it was the uh, Chester Presbytery, not the one he was in, um, Chester Presbytery, Ruling Elders Association, asked him to come speak on the conflict in the church, what was going on. And um, uh, the the address was given at Wayne Presbyterian Church in Wayne, Pennsylvania, which is sort of a suburb of Philadelphia. Our friend Zach Groff said uh, he used to drive by that church every day on the way to a job that he had when he lived. You know, he's from that area. Uh, it's, of course, it's a PCUSA church now. You know, they didn't, they, they're, they, they, they went liberal. 
but at the time they were conservative. Now that's a huge warning for us um, that you can have, you can know better, and you can have orthodox officers, um, but if you take the if you if if you, if you let it happen, uh, and then of course they also had their property tied up in the northern church, just like the southern church had. You couldn't leave with your property, so people uh, chose to keep their buildings and lose their faith essentially. Um, but uh, that was an orthodox area, orthodox church, church at that time, and they um, uh, these ruling elders said, "Come talk to us about it." Uh, he had been, you know, writing articles and letters to the editor and speaking, and he was—he quickly became known as a spokesman for the con- confessional conservative side. So he gave an address, and uh, it was well received. And then uh, the editor of the uh, Princeton Theological Review uh, asked that he turn it into uh, an article or two, which was called liberalism or christianity now i found the original on this it's weird it has one title in the uh, table of contents and another on the article so it's like they they reverse the words or something uh i should have looked that up um but you can find that online too uh the uh, the, the princeton theological review in 1922 uh so that was liberalism or christianity and then that became uh the book that we have and um a friend, a pastor that he knew, Paul Martin, kind of suggested the concept and the division and the chapters, but Machen filled in the blanks. Uh, so people were, they recognized him as a leader, as an intellect, as a powerful speaker, and uh, he was, you know, he was sort of drafted into this work of fighting liberalism in the, the Northern Presbyterian Church, and by extension, in all of mainline Protestantism. Is it is it safe to say, in as we look back a hundred years, that liberalism won? Again, Northern Church, New England, uh, like everywhere you go. I, I have a lot of family in upstate New York, I w- and I'm always shocked as a Presbyterian. A number of ref- quote unquote churches have the word "reformed" on them, and yet they're they're not reformed in the sense that we understand reformed. So, w- would you say that in the Northeast? liberalism won well it won it won the whole nation over in the northern presbyterian church um they didn't discipline liberals uh they did run machin off so yes uh institutionally especially um although there were plenty of evangelicals up through the 40s 50s maybe um but what one of machin's point points was that liberalism was a different religion and that's that was a huge, that's a huge part of the book. Uh, he makes the case that liberalism uh, was not Christianity. So, in one sense, liberalism didn't win because there was a reaction to it. I guess in the forties and fifties, neo-orthodoxy, uh, Bardianism, uh, which is which is not good, but it's not as bad as classical Christian liberalism which denied the supernatural, uh, the inspiration of scriptures, the virgin birth, miracles, uh, uh, Christ's atonement, the whole, you know, just a, just a year or two after this book came out, the Auburn Affirmation uh, was published. That was a really brazen denial of a lot of the core tenets of Christianity, or at least a plea for uh, latitude to say that, you know, 
let's not just talk about the penal substitutionary atonement. That's just one theory of the atonement. And that, um, you know, inerrancy is just one, one acceptable theory of, uh, of how to look at the Bible. Of course, underneath it was pretty much unbelief. Um, but there were thousands, you know, over a thousand ministers signed that. Now, the PCUSA was huge. I mean, it had probably, it might have had seven or 8,000 ministers nationwide. But a disturbing proportion of of the church, um, or at least the pa- the pastors, were uh, completely uh, in the thrall of lib- of uh, liberalism, and um, so yeah, it won. Uh, churches yeah, because couldn't, yeah, there, because there's hardly any reformed Presbyterian presence left in the Northeast that, that that I'm aware of. The PCA doesn't have much there. Of course, we're the southern, you know, we're just the southern version. But even the OPC is 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 small and so yeah. it should be a cautionary tale to us um what so what was what was some of the sections or content of of the book that uh, you want to highlight well you know it's pretty and, simple it's 180 pages something like that uh it's got an introduction uh, which they just call chapter one it's a little confusing um mm-hmm. in the introduction you get a lot of machin's uh he gets some of his uh, some of his uh, political philosophy, which he was fairly libertarian. Uh, there's there's a there's an interesting uh, political philosophy in that, and throughout the book, and um, uh, but he you know he lays it out pretty quickly. Um, he quotes uh, one of his former professors, who said uh, he talked about people who like to. Uh, um, conduct their uh, battles in a condition of low visibility <laughs> in other words they were they were uh, uh i think the word would be pusillanimous uh they were not uh, not terribly terribly brave um so machen had teachers who uh, encouraged him to to do the right thing and um and not not uh, not shrink back um so a famous quote, this kind of, this is a sort of set the tone. Um, he says, the type of, uh, this is on the first page, first and second page, the type of religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meanings, or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. Uh, so Machen signaled right off the bat that uh, he wasn't going to he wasn't going to pull any punches. Now he was fair, and uh, he he admitted that you know some liberals were Christians. You know, not that he he couldn't judge hearts, uh, but that uh, relig- that that liberalism was fatal. To Orthodox Christianity, and it was in fact a different religion because it denied everything that was important. Uh, and we should—it's a good time to say that Protestant liberalism, um, in you know, starting in the late 1800s, uh, was not—it it didn't have the goal of of, uh, of uh, undermining Christianity. It had the goal of saving it and of appealing to modern men. To modern people, you know, we think about how much the world's changed since the internet. But uh, but think about how the world changed between the Civil War and World War One. 
and that's really that's about fifty, that's sixty years, uh, or or less, fifty years. Um, the technological changes, the scientific advancements, theory of uh, theory of evolution, um, a lot of German uh, intellectual theories that came on. Uh, the, I mean, the world was shaken, and then the effect of World War One was just you know uh, just just terrible on the whole on the psyche of the West. Um, so yeah, it was an unsettled time, but the but the, the liberals' goal was to save Christianity. Um, and uh, I think, you know, arguably to contextualize it, contextualize it. Um, and it's not analogous to the problems we have in our church t- today, but maybe the impulse is similar, uh, the impulse yeah. to, to, to appeal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And when you highlight exactly what you said from the Civil War to World War One, like we we think technology has exploded now, but you're talking about a people that didn't have cars one day and then they had them like they didn't have electricity in their homes and they had it and and so science was so important and in that then there was all this questioning of the supernatural nature of the scriptures and of course with that german theology coming in too there was you know what was really important was the spiritual lesson in in the the text and maybe that's really what was going on there so Matron writes, just just to highlight some quotes in, in that introduction, he says, It may appear that what the liberal theologian has retained after abandoning to the enemy one Christian doctrine after another is not Christianity at all, but a religion which is so entirely different from Christianity as to be long in, in a distant category. And then later in in that section, in trying to remove from Christianity everything that could possibly be objected to in the name of science and trying to bribe off the enemy by those concessions, concessions which the enemy most desires, the apologist has really abandoned what he started out to defend. That's a profound statement, I think. Yeah, and the reason he mentioned, um, you know, he, he, he hated big government. He hated centralization of power, things that sort of um, made everyone the same tried to make everyone the same uh, and um, there were, he drew the analogy between that and what was happening in the church um, because you know the northern church was not a grassroots Presbyterian church uh, they the, 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 there was a lot of top-down power and um, he identified that as you know modern pragmatism and uh, you know being really concerned with results and efficiency and all those things. You know, we run into that today, even in the PCA, with uh, you know the the structure of the assembly and how we just we try to plow through the business and um, and committees becoming more powerful. Uh, it's 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 a normal impulse. That's what organizations do. Yeah, yes, that's for sure. You, you know what struck me about the quote you read? I, I think this is. I think I found it. It says, uh, "We shall be interested in showing that, despite the liberal use of traditional phraseology, modern liberalism not only is a different religion from Christianity, but belongs in a totally different class of religions." Now, I think that corresponds to what you said. Again, the use of language, and so you know, and Harry Reader's famous for saying, you know, they're using our our glossary, but not our dictionary. And, and it's interesting to see that those roots existed a hundred years ago. Again, trying to uh, cling to the things that people have found hopeful and important in Christianity, but then redefine what the terms mean. And in doing so, you get this confusion. You know, who is 
what do you mean by miracle then? What do you mean by salvation? What do you mean by these things? And so, that's yeah, and, and, and liberalism was was very much about experience. Uh, they thought experience would hold the church church together. You know, we've all had this experience of Jesus, uh, and uh, there 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 was a. Um, you know, there was some kinship between liberalism and revivalism, in a way, uh, where doctrine wasn't that important, but experience was. And um, that's, uh, you know, it was more like what Jesus meant to you, not what the Bible said. Uh, but, but you know, there were, there were people saying, yes, we, because we've all had this experience, or it's about the spirit of Jesus, meaning the ethos or the, the example, you know, we know the... They didn't really like to talk about, you know, Jesus dying for our sins. They liked to talk about the idea of Jesus dying or the example. There were even people, and Machen hated this. He just absolutely hated it. And he mentions it in maybe in uh, the salvation or the doctrine chapter of the book that, you know, there were people that said, and there were preachers in the teens who said, uh, well, you know, these these guys in France they were brave enough to go over the top and um you know you should you should emulate their sacrifice and they almost equated the sacrifice of soldiers which in World War 1 I'm sorry you know just you know just raising your head was going to get you killed it was just an insane war there was nothing noble about the way most people died in World War 1 but they would use these soldiers as uh, you know, they they were they were made Christ figures out of them, and they thought they could more you know by example and story, uh, morally uh, kind of uh, urge people into to living right or doing better or getting along or having an experience, and uh, and Machen hated that. He just hated that crass you know vapid use of things like that. And when you, but when you lose the truth of of Christianity. Um, it's just it's going to get it's going to get cringy and weird and goofy. I mean, look at the mega church. Look at Joel Osteen. Look at uh, Protestant. Uh, look at the mainline today, and look at some of the things uh, evangelicals do. Uh, when you when you lose the doctrine or the appreciation for it, nearly anything goes. And uh, there was there was all kinds of kinds of um, uh, you know bad doctrine led to bad stuff. And it always does. Yeah, no doubt. And so, you know, as I read Fosdick's sermon, there was this appeal. I mean, it was it's definitely this what we would call the social gospel, like this sort of appeal, like let's let's stop arguing over these little things so that we can not even really reach people for Christ. Although I think I saw some of that in Fosdick's sermon, but more like, again, there's a lot of good we need to do in the world, you know, and and. When he says, like, why are we arguing these little things? Again, we're talking about the atonement. <laughs> we're talking yeah. about the, the, the essentially the deity of Christ. I mean, if you deny the virgin birth and you deny his miracles, I mean, you're you're denying his his deity, you know. And and but we're there's not more important things, right? We're not arguing about those things in the in the PCA. Um, we're we're that's right. We're, we're just not. But as I told you earlier. Before we before we came on, there are hints that you know the in, uh, uh, in a lot of scholars have said it 
penal substitutionary atonement uh, does not sit well with the woke. Uh, it doesn't work very well with critical race theory. Um, that's not, they don't like that, and some people don't. So we, we have to be on guard and for ruling elders. Um, the reason you want to read this book and read your catechism and confession, you want to know uh, what to look for. Uh, you want to make sure people hold these doctrines. You know, everyone who listens to your podcast, George, should be on committees in their presbytery. Um, they need ruling elders on every theological exam or candidates and credential um, um, committee, whatever they, you know, every presbytery seems to call them something different. But you've got to have ruling elders on that committee to meet. They can't even meet without it uh, to examine uh, candidates for the ministry, transfers, all these things. And you're, you know, if you are concerned about the PCA and you're a ruling elder, get on that committee. You may find you know as much as anyone on there. You're not going to be able to give the Greek exam, but you can ask the hard questions. Uh, and 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 if you read Christianity and liberalism, and you and you you keep up and, and educate yourself just a little, um, you're competent to to do good work there. So please do that, everybody. Everybody who's concerned, there's a way to participate. If you'll show up as a ruling elder. Uh, you'll you'll find work to do. Yeah, you know it, it. It's interesting you're saying that. So that's that's basically the last chapter of this of the book, right? I mean, where where he's encouraging that kind of involvement. Uh, in the first place, they should encourage those who are engaging in intellectual and spiritual struggle. In the second place, Christian officers in the church should perform their duty in deciding upon the qualifications of candidates for the ministry. And I like how he said Christian officers. I mean, he's not limiting that to the uh, the ordained pastors. And in the fourth place, I mean, he's he's going through that in that last chapter as as I read it. You know, as you bring that up, though, what I'm running into with ruling elders at churches that haven't traditionally been involved denominationally but want to be and are encouraged to be and then they go to presbytery and they go to committee meetings and they're so frustrated at i don't know what the it's not gridlock it's just procedurally how honestly how it seems like a kangaroo court sometimes i mean it just we're supposed to be doing things decently in order and so often what i'm finding is ruling elders are so unimpressed with how uh i I don't do you know what i'm talking about do you you have yeah yeah, somewhat (laughs) i mean especially at first i mean the the learning curve is steep um you know uh more in the pca uh sponsored a bunch of videos with uh, dominic aquila and fred greco you can find those online uh that are sort of a user's guide to these sort of things and uh you can find those. Maybe you can you can get them and uh, look them up on Vimeo or YouTube, and you can uh, link to that. Or maybe uh, have uh, you know uh, Dom or Fred on. Uh, Fred would be happy, or Mel Duncan would be good to give kind of a, a crash course in ruling elder involvement because you know Fred was a ruling elder before he was a pastor. Mel is a ruling elder. Um, and they would be the guys to, to talk to talk to. We're yeah, we've Mel's tried gonna, to do a, Mel's going to do a bunch. Yeah, yeah, we've tried to do a, a, a little bit with more in the PCA uh, to train, uh, but you know it's really a, it's a full time job, and um, 
I mean, I, I've been I've been I've been going to Presbyterian off and on for uh, 13 years, and I I don't know everything by any means. But I'll tell you this: if you show up, you'll you'll be you'll probably be respected just because you show up as a ruling elder, and um, you'll 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 find work to do. They'll put you well, on that, the committee. Well, that's for sure. I mean, that's for sure. They, we, their ruling elders are needed on the committees, so they usually are very happy to have them there. I think what I'm like, what you're describing definitely exists. It, it could be daunting, and when you don't understand it, when you don't know Robert rules, it can be frustrating. But what I'm talking about is more the procedural shenanigans. Like, like I find ruling elders are giving up work days or Saturdays with their family. They can't adjust their schedule the way a pastor can, and they go to a meeting and they they think they're there to do the business of the church, and you know, like it again, seems like I'll, it's give, already it seems like it's already decided. Yes, like I give you I give you an example. It's it, so we try so Overture fifteen failed. Uh, I don't care. I'm going to say this. Overture fifteen failed, and so when it failed, our church said, "Well, we're going to put forward a, a replacement overture for this," and but it wasn't within the 21 days that the presbytery requires um, it to be in the docket. And that's fine. I'm not complaining about that. I get it. We, we, we do things all the time. As a matter of fact, the stuff wasn't e- emailed out. I don't think 21 days in advance, but anyway, we had all this other new business and our standing rules allow us to, to enter into discussion, new business. And so this overture that we introduced was two weeks in advance. It was a part of the docket as new business. It was there for everybody to see and we get to the meeting and men argue against the overture, allowing the overture to be discussed. Now, these ruling elders came to vote on this overture. They argued against allowing the ruling elder to be uh, ruling the overture to be discussed because it wasn't in within the 21 days. Yet a whole slew of other new business that came in after the overture was given to everybody weeks in advance was allowed in. And so these ruling elders are like, I don't even know why I come, you know, and it's like nothing was done. Nothing was done out of procedure. It was all within the procedure, but it was a procedural move to block an overture that they just didn't even want to discuss rather than let it come to a vote, you know, and and I think ruling elders, I see them get frustrated over. Like you said, things that seem to be predetermined before they got to the meeting, like they're not in the discussion. And they may not be. It just seems that way. And yes. all, all the pastors know each other, and many of them know the rules. So everyone, you know, everyone but the ruling elder understands what's going on. That's and it. so, yeah, I, I get that. I mean, the, my first general assembly was just a, a whirlwind. You know, I had no idea what was going on. And uh, even since then, you know, I think I think last the last couple, I've, I figured it all out, but uh, nothing really took me by surprise. But it, you know, it just comes quick, and um, you can think, "Oh, we're going to talk about this," and you turn your head, and we've moved on. You know, it's quick right. vote, no debate, gone. That's um, it. That's a, you're you're explaining exactly what I was. So, so Brad, as as we're getting close to where I like to be on this, what what are the similarities? Because you know, are are uh, people that disagree with us whenever we bring Christianity and liberalism up? They're they're quick to say it's it's disingenuous to bring up uh, the fundamentalist modernist controversy because we're not dealing with inerrancy of scripture in the PCA. You know nobody's denying the deity of Christ or the miracles, and so this is this is they almost claim it's a dishonest 
thing to be bringing up. What are what are the similarities and why is it a serious thing what we're going through now and how can we learn from that event? Well, I, I think something important to say or a, a good so after this book came out in 23 and then uh, I think the Shall the Fundamentalist Win came, and, and the Auburn Affirmation which was the big liberal manifesto came out in 24 or 25 so very quickly uh, the battle lines were drawn. Machen was obviously one of the main leaders, um, though he was fairly young and, uh, you know, a junior kind of professor at that point. Um, but very quickly, he became a focal point. He was nominated at some point in the mid mid to late 20s for a, a, a higher professor professorial post, you know, a chair of uh, apologetics, I think, and he was blocked. Uh, the the, the assembly uh, voted him down. That just never happened. And uh, he was kind of the, the mascot for the bad guys, and uh, pretty soon they had a plan to reorganize Princeton Seminary, which was going to expand the board or, or make the board and the there was a board of directors and board of trustees, and one was more conservative and one was more liberal, and they added, you know, they kind of packed the court, and then they put them together, and uh, and they marginalized the, the, the conservatives, and uh, Machen suffered in that. But it wasn't the liberals who did Machen in, uh, who, who, who torpedoed him. It was evangelicals. It was the moderates. It was Erdman. You know, you, you hear me do the don't be an Erdman. Uh, well, it was Charles Erdman, it was Robert Speer, it was uh, uh, Stevenson. I don't remember his first name, um, but it was it was the moderate evangelicals of their day who were more, you know, they were more Christian American, they were more evangelical, they were more ecumenical, they were more um, revi- revivalist in a way. I mean, some of them were actually kind of revival speakers. Than they were Presbyterian. Uh, they were more com- committed to church growth, um, a certain kind of outreach and cultural, you know, um, impact than they were to Presbyterian distinctives. Uh, and we see that today. I mean, that's just we. I, I, I tell people the the battle in the PCA is not uh, liberals versus conservatives; it's Presbyterians versus evangelicals. Uh, I'm convinced of that. And that's exactly, uh, it's not the same issues, and it's not the same magnitude of problem. I would never, ever say that. Um, but the the moderates, the evangelicals of Machen's day, sided with the liberals because that was the, the big tent. Uh, that was the direction it was going. That was the zeitgeist. Uh, the nice people and the nice people got together, and they uh, marginalized the bad people, and Machen was Machen was the bad guy. He was the old-fashioned stick in the mud. He was the impediment to progress. Uh, he was yesterday's news. He recommended he he represented an era they wanted to be to move on from. Uh, old Princeton was known for orthodoxy, careful scholarship, uh, the confession, uh, the languages. Uh, you know there was kind of a student revolt in the first decade of the um, of the 20th century while well, Machen I think was maybe an instructor maybe a senior 
but the uh, the students kind of revolted and they said, we want more practical courses. We want less doctrine. We want less languages. We want practical theology. We want cultural apologetics. Does any of that sound uh, familiar to you? You know, yes. our denominational seminary, now they're, they're, they've undone this. This is going away. They renamed their systematic theology department the missional theology department. I mean, that's yeah. that's exactly the same impulse. It's in, um, so that's I recognize. I think I recognize that in the PCA, um, there there are Presbyterians and there are Presbyterians. There are evangelicals, and there are confessional Presbyterians. And I think one, uh, you know, evangelicals become liberals. I mean, look at it. Uh, evangelicalism uh, generally it, it moves left. It breaks broad. And, you know, look at the deconstructors. Look at the emergent church. Where'd they come out of? They came out of evangelicalism. All this deconstruction, all this new social gospel, you know, with the, in the progressive Christianity that we talk about, it's coming out of the evangelicals, uh, not the confessionalists. So um, I think, you know, that's the firewall. The uh, confessionalists are uh, always going to be fighting in, in a in a denomination or a tradition that, you know, we've got our new school and our old school. We've got, we've always had people who were more broad uh, versus uh, more uh, doctrinally precise. You're always going to have that struggle. Uh, the new school, old school controversy, uh, the, the liberalist, uh, the liberal um, uh, a fundamentalist controversy, these things keep, keep replaying. Um, we're not in a cycle where we're about to lose the gospel and the Bible, uh, but I think we some of the same dynamics are there. Yes, definitely. And, w- and what I was highlighting in the last episode was a lot of the arguments, a lot of the motives, a lot of the tactics being used to, uh, to uh, against confessionalists. Are, are the same. Like if you read Fosdick's sermon, you can't not see, just take the specific issues out, like Brad and I are saying. Take those out, but you can't not see the what's going on today. I, I was telling Brad before we started this, it's almost as if they're they're tweeting quotes from Fosdick's sermon against us. <laughs> you know? I, I think I did a few of those. I, I would tweet, I would, I tweeted some lines from, uh, from Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And uh, see if if anyone could figure out who who that was. Of course, with Google, everybody can, everybody can figure out very quickly. But the, yeah, I, I, right. I noticed exactly the same thing. It's the appeal to uh, to to you know uh, keeping the young people, you know, reaching the uh, urban professional, reaching the intellectual, changing the culture. Uh, and again, the Christian nationalists of then the I mean really. Were the, were the mainline Protestants. They were the liberals. Uh, the, their goal was as much about uh, um, dealing with immigrant culture. You know, Machen was a huge advocate for immigrants and for people that, 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 that didn't speak English and for private religious schools and, you know, for German-speaking Lutheran schools. And uh, he was, uh, even for Catholic immigrants, he thought, you know, they, they, you know, leave them alone. Let, let they've got their culture. Let them do their thing. Uh, but it was the Rockefellers, uh, the Woodrow Wilsons, who uh, really wanted to make this, you know, a homogenous, 
uh, wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. Uh, they ran things, and they wanted to keep running things. And religion was part of it; was part of the, yeah. the tool to run the to run the country. And in Woodrow Wilson's case, to you know save the world with the League of Nations and World War One and all those things. Right. Yeah. I, I do think what one thing you said is going to be hard for some people to grasp. I know what you're saying because it's really it's really a a confessional theology and a polity thing, but. Uh, there are a lot of evangelicals that are not what we would say like broadly evangelical that are super conservative that aren't Presbyterian, and I think they're still allies. I think they're op- they're operating on a system and a foundation that could could lead them that way. Uh, but I don't, oh, certain, I don't think too much. Yeah, yeah, certainly yeah. there there are plenty of conservatives, but if you're not confessionalist, um, you know. You, if you don't have those guardrails and you're not right. accountable, uh, anything can happen, um, um, and we've seen it. Um, well, one of the things, you know, we talk about Finney, Charles Finney, who was uh, who began as a some presbytery in the Northern Church, New School, I guess, ordained him very inadvisedly. He, he didn't he didn't believe Presbyterian doctrine. But a bad presbytery made him a Presbyterian minister for a while. Of course, he left that. But Charles Finney, the revivalist, Mister New Measures, he's the father of the fundam of the revivalist right and the the activist left in this country. Toward the end of Finney's life, when he saw that his converts uh, were many of them weren't real, he thought, "Well, I should have emphasized uh, the law more." And uh, it, he became uh, a very legalistic, uh, almost a perfectionist, and he got all into social issues. And, uh, you know, he founded uh, Oberlin, I think Oberlin, or he was president of Oberlin University, which is easily the most liberal university in the United States of America. It's just, it's, well, there, there are a couple of these schools, Oberlin and Swarthmore, uh, but one of them is called the Kremlin on the Crump because the Crump River runs next to one of them. I can't remember which. But so Finney, the revivalist, he's got ancestors who are the wild fundamentalist, uh, you know, screaming uh, fundamentalist preachers that we might hear. But he's also the father, in many ways, of, of, the, um, of, the, of the rainbow uh, stole-wearing, uh, you know, gay Pastor Megan, um, they-them, of the main line, uh, so uh, revivalism can it can lead you astray very quickly if it's about experience, if it's about uh, uh, human action more than uh, God's sovereign action in salvation. Yeah. So I, I got I have Fosdick's uh, sermon open, and right at the end he says uh, the second element which is needed if we are to reach a happy solution of this problem is a clear insight into the main issues of modern Christianity. All right, ignore that. And a sense of penitent shame that the Christian church should be quarreling over little matters when the world is dying of great needs. And then it goes on. It says, The present world situation smells to heaven now, and now in the presence of colossal problems, which must be solved in Christ's name, and for Christ's sake, the fundamentalists propose to drive out from the Christian churches all the consecrated souls who do not agree with their theory of inspiration. What a measurable folly. And so you see how 
doctrine and theology and what we believe is minimized because of the problems in the world. And what we really need to be focused on is, is it, it let, let, again, the big tent idea, you know, we're all trying to work toward the same thing, even if we believe different things. And of course that's not true, <laughs> but you know how Fosdick started this sermon was the, this morning we are to think of the fundamentalist controversy which threatens to divide the American churches. So we we see this now. It's those holding to sound doctrine, to confessionalism, we're the divisive ones, not the ones that are departing from what we believe and what we've agreed to. And so, again, just the, the common theme through these two things is, is, again, those similar sort of tactics that are used. Like we've become the divisive ones for for demanding that we do what we've agreed to do, believe what we've agreed to believe. And when you said, you know, we're, we're not dealing with the same problems. We, we've keeps, we, we've said that repeatedly. I do think, and I've said this before that liberalism, I believe is, is, a, is basically an honest position. They don't believe the Bible and they say that <laughs> we don't believe this literally. And so that's why, Machen says it's a different religion, and, 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 and I agree with him. What I think is in the progressivism that we see today, so we're not dealing with liberalism, which is denying the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ, all that. We're dealing with this progressivism, which reshapes, reframes, redefines words, which enables them to claim to hold to inerrancy, but then say things like the sufficiency of Scripture is not enough. We need these other these other things, social sciences or whatever, to the progressive. I, I say it's the perspicuity of Scripture. Scripture's not really clear on these things. And that's why we have, you know, a more egalitarian bent. Uh, I, I listened to the recent po uh, Presby cast you had where it was going through um, Keller's, I don't know, I, I call it Keller's manifesto, whatever that document is for his way forward in in, uh, in Christianity in, in this, in, in Western civilization. And, you know, he, he basically, like you, you highlighted it. Yeah, we got to move toward egalitarianism in his, in his mind, you know, and that all comes from this view that the scriptures just aren't clear on this. And so I, I think progressivism and postmodernism, while they're not liberalism and modernism, they are maybe even more cancerous to the church because they're deceptive in what they're doing. At least in liberalism, they, you know, guys came forward and said, we don't believe Christ was born of a virgin. The presbytery just shouldn't have ordained them, you know, but, but they were honest about that position. What we have now is people affirming doctrines, but believing different things about the doctrines, but saying we believe in the inerrancy in those cases, we're just misunderstanding what's inerrant about it. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, and, but there, there were, there was equivocation among the uh, among the Protestant liberals. Uh, they, they, many of them would, uh, you know, they would they would hide behind words, and they would say yes. things that sounded good, and uh, so there was equivocation. But it was, um, you know, it was pretty clear what what everyone believed. Um, but I think also something that we. Uh, 
one of the things you can say about Machen was he was a spirituality of the church guy. So he thought the the mission of the church was spiritual. Uh, it was not to uh, you know to necessarily. I mean, yes, the world needs to change, and Christians can change it. But it wasn't the job of the of the Northern Presbyterian Church to do social engineering and have you know um, as as Keller suggested this this national organization of Christians to address social problems. You know, just and. Um, you know, with with denominational involvement. So, um, but Machen was about the spirituality of the church. So is our confession, by the way. You know, there's a there's basically a a chapter on that. Um, so that's got to do with the mission of the church. Is our mission everything, or is it? A, it's a very narrow thing. Is it a? Is it a? Is it a? Is it a change the city or the country thing? Uh, as, a, as an activity of the institutional church, or is it about making disciples and believers and letting them do it? Uh, so the mission of the church is a huge thing. And I'll just say this. I look at a lot of church websites, and, and most, you know, the trendy thing is you have a, a sentence or a, a sentence fragment or a slogan that tells what your priorities are and what the church is about. And a lot of times these days it's, Love. We're going to love the city into life. Right. I can't relate to that at all. That is a different. <laughs> now, I think behind it, I, I think they're almost being dishonest because they believe better than that. That's a different religion. I mean, religion is what we do in the service of God, right? I mean, that's what we do when we get together. That's religion. That's a different religion. And it's not good news, you know. So you're a single mother in the city, and your husband's left, and you got two kids, and you were raised in the church, and you know you 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 you've been reading your Bible, and you somebody gave you a R.C. Sproul book, and you think, okay, this is something to this, and you go to this PCA church, and you get there, and they say, good news, we're glad you're here, we're going to redeem the city, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna transform this, you know, you just walked past these these burned out buildings. And you hear the police sirens. Well, that's part of your job. You're going you're gonna to do that. No, you're here. It's like the last chapter, the last paragraphs of Christianity and liberalism. I know we're running out of time. This is a good time. So this yeah, is a parallel. On. This is a parallel between then and now. Uh, so the, I usually can't read the last few pages of, uh, of this uh, book without, uh, without breaking down a little bit. Um, but let me... Um, let me um, uh, let me let me read to the end of the book, and hopefully it would whet someone's desire to uh, to to read the whole thing. Uh, okay, so Machen says next to the last page, and we maybe we'll stop and talk about you know we'll comment a little bit. He says one hears much. It is true about Christian union and harmony and cooperation. But the union that is meant is often a union with the world against the Lord, so a worldly church, or at best, a force union of machinery, meaning organizational machinery, and tyrannical committees. Uh, How different is the true unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Sometimes it is true the longing for Christian fellowship is satisfied. There are congregations even in the present age of conflict, that are really gathered around the table 
of the crucified Lord. There are pastors that are pastors indeed, but such congregations in many cities are difficult to find. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often, one finds only the turmoil of the world. Social issues, social conflict, racial conflict, all those things. They were doing the same thing then. And then he continues. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but he comes with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin. Such is the sermon. So he's saying, you go into these churches, that's what you might hear. Well, we're not that bad, but... There are elements of that, right? I mean, we know, we know there are. We've 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 heard the sermons, we've seen the statements, and then he continues, and this takes a little understanding. This part, and then perhaps the service is closed by one of those hymns, breathing out the angry passions of eighteen sixty one. He's talking about the battle hymn of the republic. He's talking about Christian nationalism, real Christian nationalism. That 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 was was rampant in his day. Um, so he's talking about bringing in the, uh, you know, we're refighting the civil war right here in this worship service. Um, so the, uh, these hymns found in the back part of the hymnals. He says, "Thus the warfare of the world has entered into the house of God, and sad indeed is the heart of the man who has come seeking peace." And now we come to the, the last paragraph, and he asks this question, Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, he's referring to labor, Marxism in the in the cities, in the in the industries, that was all over the newspapers then, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God, and that the gate of heaven, and from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. The end. Uh, that's how he ends the chapter on the church, and I think it's his word that 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 chapter, and right down to every issue, is incredibly relevant. Much more relevant today than when I first read it in probably two thousand four or five. I mean, we hadn't we hadn't um, we hadn't had the in- injection into the life of the PCA. Um, a lot of these social issues and political issues that we've seen since, you know, the last 10 years, right. we've got all those things, all of them. Yeah. Yeah, de- definitely. It, it, like, well, like Harry reader says, like whack-a-mole, um, Christianity. And I think what that chap, what you just read should resonate with everybody listening to the, anybody that has an interest to listen to this, uh, this podcast would, should say, man, is easy writing about, 
today. And I think what it really highlights is, and this goes back to your point about the spirituality of the church, is, is the priorities of of the church. And the liberals and the fundamentalists of the day had just simply had different priorities and over important things. And I, th- I think that's what we're seeing today. Again, the fact that nobody is denying the key doctrines of the faith or the inerrancy of Scripture is, is not in question in the PCA. But what is the priorities of of the churches, of, like you just said, the websites? What what are they reflecting? I mean, that, that is telling. And I, so I think that is a good place to end. So my encouragement to everybody is is to read this book. It's only, like Brad said, 130 pages or whatever. What, 180, 80. Oh, 180? Okay. Yeah. 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 I, there, I have there, a, are all my, sorts of, there are all sorts of special editions with some commentaries. Westminster Seminary's done them. Ligonier's got one by with Stephen Nichols, you know, providing notes, I think. He, he did a biography of Machen. Uh, we should say you should read the, the Stonehouse biography of Machen. It's the long one. Uh, he, w- he was a student. Uh, it's on Audible as well. You should read Defending the Faith by Daryl Hart, which absolutely changed my world in about 2005 when I read that. And uh, Stephen Nichols has a biography, two or three lesser ones, but uh, yeah, mm-hmm. read those. Yeah, yeah, and you can, and, and as Brad said earlier, you you can get this for free. I mean, my version I've had for over ten years free on Amazon on Kindle on my Kindle, so I don't have actually page numbers to know. Uh, as I'm, as I'm looking at it, but yeah, definitely get those. Also, I guess I'll say about the uh, reformed. Let me see what it is. Reformed Media Podcast. Daryl Hart did a whole class on uh, yeah Reformed Forum podcasts. You can because of the hundred year anniversary. I don't know. There might be ten episodes or something. I think it was Daryl Hart. Would you know, Brad? Yeah, and we've yes, and he's done a similar series on Presbycast. And you go back years in Reform Forum archives. He's done a Sunday school class on that before, so there are lots of versions of that. Similar material, uh, all good. You can also subscribe to the podcast called Theology Simply Profound, which is a sub podcast of Reform Forum, and they have a full reading in seven. You know, there's seven chapters in the book. You can listen to the whole book with a little bit of commentary. Uh, Bob, my friends, uh, Bob Derulo and, uh, oh gosh, Rob McKenzie. Uh, but uh, Theology Simply Profound, that's very good. Uh, download those. And uh, my friend uh, Tim Hopper, uh, go to readmachin.com, and he's got all sorts of resources there, bibliography, timeline of his life. Uh, so, yeah, readmachin.com. And Theology Simply simply Profound are some lesser-known resources that would be tremendous for anyone. So I I told you Brad was a machinophile. I'm going to patent that that word. Uh, And he is. So Brad, this is Brad Isbell again from PresbyCast. So definitely, if you don't know about PresbyCast, I I don't know how you would know about me if you didn't know about PresbyCast. So you you know them first, but check them out for sure. And... uh, Brad, I appreciate it. You're you're usually the guy asking the questions or leading the discussion, so I appreciate you coming on here and uh, giving us an education. Well, usually I just rant to my wife, so I can rant to you now. Perfect.
Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that that's uh, the Presbyterian Reformed Churchman signing off. Again, if this interests you, or if you have other ruling elder friends, be sure to share this. Also, go and like it, follow it, do whatever you do on the channel, wherever you're listening to this, because it'll help others uh, get the word out. Thanks again, Brad. 